well, I won't be able to talk or stand up. So she didn't get up to get any. She just said it. So we'll see how things go here. It always moves me very deeply to hear children singing about the kingdom of God and saying in song what they can put far more eloquently than we ever could in reading Isaiah 11, just from the Bible and trying to explain what it means. They're so full of hope and excitement and curiosity about life and the world ahead of them. And you know, used to, years ago in the church, decades, I might even say generations ago at this point, we wondered if we would be the generation or our children would that would grow up in the world tomorrow. And then we were wondering if the children would grow up before it would come. It's changed a little now. We're wondering if all the old men are going to die before it comes. But uh, I think finally we're looking at this little group of children here who truly will grow up in the kingdom of God. I think it's that close. And uh, I think God was talking of this generation in the church, of the people that he's called at the end time. He's not going to call a great number of people again, a few at the eleventh hour, but not another great calling. And out of the many who were called into the church, few are now being chosen. We've said that many times, but just seeing the children here singing emphasize that in my mind that... uh, We've finally seen that God is working with this generation, and that's the end of it. So before all the old guys die off, it has to be here for these children that sang today. I'm not trying to set dates, but I don't know how long old men live. Uh, I think I have old age, not leprosy, but even old age can hang around for 30 years. Anyway, thank you, children. I truly, personally appreciated that. I know that everyone else did. Well, let's go back to Ezra 6 today. I think there is an awful lot here that could be instructive to us in the building of the latter temple. As I said before, I do believe that it is the next important phase of the work of God in the end time. We tended always to look to worldwide and say, we'll jump on a plane and go to a place of safety, and then Herbert and Ted Armstrong will preach the gospel around the world as the two witnesses, and then the end will come. Well, it didn't happen that way, and they're both dead now, and I don't think are going to be resurrected to do that. That isn't the way God has worked in the past, and I don't think it's the way he will work now. Uh, But we didn't understand then that there's some other jobs that have to be done. Herbert Armstrong understood there had to be an end-time temple, and therefore he thought he was the head of it. He didn't understand there had to be one more, and that it had to be better spiritually, stronger, and more faithful than even that which he oversaw. Now, I'm not saying that was not the church of God. It certainly was. But we've been seeing some scriptures that indicate that in the end-time Jerusalem must be rebuilt, and the walls of the temple, I mean the uh, foundation of the temple must be laid, and the foundation and the temple built. 
to reiterate, I believe that the spiritual temple has to be laid, its foundation, by Zerubbabel, the leader of the two witnesses. I think that's very clear in Zechariah 4 that he laid the foundation and will have to finish the temple. Even as Zechariah, I mean, uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua did with that original temple as original men. However, uh, we find that Osiris at the end also has to say, Jerusalem, your walls will be built and the foundation of the temple must be laid. So if Zerubbabel is laying the spiritual foundation, it appears that Osiris, who is not converted, is also laying a foundation or saying that it has to be done and turning it over to those who will do it. And I'm wondering very seriously now if that is not also a physical structure as well as uh, the spiritual temple going hand in hand. So let's go into Ezra 6. We've read the first two or three verses, but I'll go back and show this again. Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in the house of the scrolls where the treasures were laid up in Babylon. And it was found at Agmitha, in the palace that is the province of the Medes, a roll, and therein was a record thus written. In the first year of Cyrus the king, the same Cyrus the king made a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be builded, <clears throat> the place where they offered sacrifices, and let the foundations thereof be strongly laid. It has to have a strong foundation. Christ preached those same words when he was here, saying we shouldn't build on a foundation of sand, but you need to build upon a rock. And he certainly is the rock that it has to be laid on, whether, a whether it's a physical building or whether it's a spiritual building, you need a strong foundation. We've probably all in our lives seen buildings that were put up that did not have strong foundations, and over a period of time, uh, the weak places began to show and began to sink, and pretty soon the whole foundation crumbled. And when the foundation crumbles, the rest of the building falls with it. So it has to be strongly laid. The height thereof threescore cubits, and the breadth thereof threescore cubits. So roughly 90 feet high uh, and 90 feet wide. Then it says, with three rows of great stones. So we have a stone, rock, very hard foundation, and a row of new timber. Now, I don't know on a spiritual perspective quite what to say about that. We are called stones of Christ's building, he being the chief cornerstone, and perhaps the three rows means that the bulk there of that foundation must be of stones that have already been polished, prepared, and made ahead of time. In other words, they were called out, they were worked on, they were shaped over a period of time, and they were used as a part of a strong foundation. Then it talks about a roll of new timber. Maybe there will be some who have been called uh, toward the end or a few at the 11th hour or whatever. It doesn't talk about rows of timber. If you're going to go 90 feet high, uh, that's quite a bit of timber. But a row of new timber. So it might just be, of course we're talking about uh, the foundations here, not the entire building, I guess. 
But nonetheless, there may be some new people involved, not just old people that have been around a while. That's just a, a take on that that might or, not be, might or might not be what it means. <coughs> and also let the golden and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took forth out of the temple, which is at Jerusalem, and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought again to the temple, which is at Jerusalem, everyone to his place, and place them in the house of God. I think the physical Cyrus has to bring the physical temple vessels. We are also the vessels of God with his Holy Spirit, and we are to be clean and proper vessels to go into the house of God as part of that construction and decoration and usefulness of the house. Excuse me, I may have to blow my nose once in a while. <clears throat> Notice they were all brought to their place. Each had its own particular place that it had been designed to fit in and had a specific function. And I don't think God is working with you and me over a period of time, refining us as gold and silver as temple vessels, uh, unless he has a specific place for us. He's designing us in a certain way. So, how do you know? How do I know where God might want us to fit in his temple? And you might think you'd like to go this way and be like this. But God says, well, that's not where I want you in my temple. I want you over here. And those characteristics that you think you need for this job have got to be filed off and reworked, and you have to be refitted for this job over here. So God knows what kind of trials, troubles, tri tribulations, tests, difficulties, what kind of refining and shaping. There again, we could use the potter uh, and the wheel. It's easier to shape clay in that sense. But he knows what shape he wants us to be in. And we can't resist. We have to be stiff enough to retain shape, but we have to be pliable enough to be shaped. And sometimes that's a difficulty for us. Why are you doing this to me? Why do I have to go through that? Well, sometimes we look at each other and say, well, I can tell you why you're going through that. You're a sinner. That's the easy human conclusion for all of us to make. And in some cases, that's true. And in most cases, when we say that, we're judging them by ourselves. Ta-da. Uh, we know we need shape, and we know we need chasing, so if somebody's getting chastened, they must have sinned like we did. <laughs> Although we might not add that part. But God isn't always judging it like that. Uh, he has to shape us the way he wants us. And sometimes a chisel and a hammer can be a pretty difficult tool, especially if you're what's being shaped by it. So everyone has its own place. Now therefore, Tatnai, governor beyond the river, uh, Shethar Bozni, and your companions in the Ephar, the kites, which are beyond the river, be you far from here. Those are 
Gentile-sounding names. God is putting his vessels together, preparing them for their places in the temple, and he says, you guys with these odd names, get away from here. Let the work of this house of God alone. <clears throat> My voice is changing. I'm getting older. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God in his place. He tells other people, you just get out of here, leave it alone. This is something for God and his people to do. No one else. Moreover, I make a decree what you shall do to the elders of these Jews for the building for this house of God, that of the king's goods, even of the tribute beyond the river, forthwith expenses be given to these men, that they be not hindered. So Cyrus not only volunteered those temple vessels which had been uh, kept and stored in Babylon, and haven't we been in Babylon as well as temple vessels, speaking spiritually, Not only those, but also expenses out of the king's treasury. So it would appear, if the historical record is a pattern for the future, that not only would the temple vessels appear, but also the monetary uh, wherewithal to do the job. Now Haggai does tell us, does he not, that the time will come to build the temple of God, and the people will say it isn't time, and he says, you're out there working <clears throat> with a bag that has holes in it and inflation is eating up all your money and you're just on a treadmill going nowhere. After I quoted that last, a few days ago, a couple people came and says, when should we quit our jobs? They were serious. And just go about doing what God wants done. I said, I don't think the time is quite here yet. We still do have taxes to take care of and fuel and various physical expenses since we're still associated with Babylon. Uh, price of oil went to 96 bucks today again, up another couple of dollars. The Dow was down over 200 when I last checked before I came over. Well, things are getting worse day by day. So there will come a time. But I think this answers the question that was asked. When the, the true Cyrus is on the scene, and we do not know for sure that the man we're dealing with is that at this point, and he certainly hasn't shown us any temple vessels or any money. No, it gets down to the bottom line. Show me the money. <laughs> Let's see the money. Uh, <clears throat> that has not transpired, and so far nothing has been found. We're working off circumstantial evidence and possibilities, <laughs> and they may indeed come forth. But in the meantime, I think we have to make do the best we can until conditions change, until we see happen what is happening right here in the story of Ezra. Anyway, he said, be sure expenses are given to these men that they be not hindered. They don't have to worry about making it working for a living as well as doing the work of God. But I think the time is definitely coming when it'll be time for us all to quit our jobs in this world and get busy building the temple of God. Don't think it's too far off. I think there will be a climate change as well in which that covert 
from the heat comes, and each man can have his own vine and fig tree, uh, because that is in the story of Joshua 3, I mean of Zechariah 3, before Zechariah, I mean, I can't talk today, Zerubbabel and Joshua come on the scene together in chapter 4 of Zechariah. So, at some point, these things have to happen. The turnaround has to come, and it will be very, very obvious, and then it will be clear to us what we need to do. So let's go on in verse 9. And that which they have need of, both young bullocks and rams and lambs, for the burnt offerings of the, of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the appointment of the priests which are at Jerusalem, let it be given them day by day without fail. So he was so generous that he didn't say, just give each guys of these guys a piece of bread and some water every day so they can work on the temple. He said, give them everything they need to take care of the temple sacrifice, of all the offerings that God requires of them. Give them everything they need. Be very, very generous with them. This man we were dealing with at the moment, if, if he turns out to be the man I had a conversation with a few days ago, and <coughs> he has moved very quickly to free and clear some land that he thinks could be vital to the end-time work, and in so doing has incurred more debt on other properties that he has, and they've been stretched pretty thin. Uh, uh, financially as a result of trying to put first things first, if you will. And uh, I, I don't think I'm betraying a confidence in telling you this. I want you to understand the man's mindset. Uh, some of his sons came to him, or one or two of them, and said, Dad, if you don't give this thing up pretty soon, if it doesn't come through, uh, you're going to have to just put it in the trash can, I'm using my own words here, uh, and forget about it. And he got all over them. He said, we've got to look at a bigger picture. We've got to look at obeying God. We've got to look at an end-time work that has to be done. And we've got to consider these people that we're working with, you and me, and getting God's work accomplished. So he got all over his own family. So we can't be selfish here. We've got to do that which is most important. To me, that revealed a great deal about the man's character and the upstanding side of him. And it, it kind of echoes in my mind what I'm standing here reading about the Cyrus. Well, this isn't Cyrus at this point. This is Darius who followed later. But same, same mindset, same approach. Well, this is what Cyrus said. Let's get it done. You know, <coughs> Let it be given them day by day without fail. What did Christ say? Give us this day our daily bread. Give us everything we need every day to do the job that you've given us to do. So he says, here's the purpose. Let it be given day by day without fail that they may offer sacrifices of sweet savor to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and of his sons. <laughs> it's always curious how Nebuchadnezzar, or a, a Gentile king of one stripe or another, will put that. They'll recognize that there is a God in heaven, and we want these people to serve him, 
And since he's a God that can bless them and they serve him, pray that he'll bless us too. Um, Not that we want to go through repentance and self-denial and self-crucifixion and all those things a Christian must do, but uh, I know he's God. Pray for me. (laughs) I guess that's okay. I mean, just as a human being, that's what you'd want. So you can't fault him for that. It's just curious how they will approach it. Also, or in addition, I have made a decree that whosoever shall alter this word. Now, he had seen in history here Cyrus issue a decree. He had seen it fall on deaf ears and be ignored, and enemies come up against the Jews of that day. And then they went into the history and saw that indeed that command had been given, and he didn't want to let that happen anymore. So he says, I have made a decree that whosoever shall alter this word, let timber be pulled down from his house, and being set up, let him be hanged thereon, and let his house be made a dunghill for this. Hang him on the timber out of his own house, and then use it for a compost pile, place to age manure. Pretty serious words. This is a very serious project that has to be done here at the end. And I think the God in heaven inspired this king to say this and to follow it up because it was important to him. And I feel that what is about to transpire in the church of God is even more important to him. After all, we're talking about a bride here that Christ divorced. In history. Now we're talking about a bride at the end time that he's going to come back and marry in glory. So which is more important? And the God that has caused his name to dwell there destroy all kings and people that shall put to their hand to alter and destroy this house of God which is at Jerusalem. I, Darius, have made a decree. Let it be done quickly, with speed. Now what does God say is going to happen in the end time? He says, Zerubbabel, before him, the mountains will be made low, the valleys exalted, the governments of this world cannot stand, that he is going to make his end time people a sharp new threshing instrument with teeth, both in Isaiah and in Micah. It says that those who cumber themselves with Jerusalem there toward the end of Zechariah will be cut to pieces. So God is backing up what Darius said here, and he has certainly shown us scriptures that he will back it up in the end time. Those who would hurt or destroy in all his holy mountain are going to be destroyed. Up until it's time... But God says, let them have it. I'm going to take my people away, and they can tromp on it for 42 months. But up until that time, nah. I think there's more about that a little later on. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll get to a, another point on that in that regard. Then Patani, governor on this side of the river, Shitharbozni, 
and their companions according to that which Darius the king had sent. So they did speedily. I suspect he said it with a little iron in his voice. <coughs> and the elders of the Jews builded, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. So it does tie in those two prophets that were there on the scene. And God recorded their words and their message and put them in the end-time prophecies of the minor prophets for a later fulfillment. So when it comes to building the temple, we need to listen very closely to Haggai and to Zechariah. They were a big help to those people as human beings back in that day, and now their words span the centuries, and they were a big help, an inspiration, a direction, and an instruction to us and what needs to be done and how to go about it and what we must do ourselves in becoming clean instead of unclean and turning to God with our whole heart and being responsive to him by being courageous, not fearing, working hard. Those are things he tells us to do here at the end. And they builded and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the commandment of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So the Persian Empire went along with this through the span of three kingships. And this house was finished on the third day of the month Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. So uh, Adar comes uh, basically around February, March, just before the turn of the year and uh, the Passover. Uh, whether that will hold true in terms of the temple to come, I do not know, but that's the pattern in the story at this point. Remember, we started out back there with Feast of Trumpets, Feast of Tabernacles, and here we wind up uh, just before Passover. <laughs> and the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the children of the captivity <clears throat> kept the dedication of this house of God with joy and offered at the dedication of this house of God a hundred bullocks, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs, and for a sin offering for all Israel, twelve he-goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. Now, we keep the destruction of the temple now, understanding the fast of Zechariah, uh, as a fast day because of the destruction that came, don't we? Remember what Zechariah says about how those will become feasts of joy? Here's the story right here. It was finally finished, and they dedicated it with joy. So the destruction had to do with fasting. The finishing has to do with joy. God's Word fits together in so many ways. It's just incredible. <clears throat> and they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their courses for the service of God, which is at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. So there was organization. There were people in charge of various things. It wasn't just an all, let's all sit around the table and, and decide what we're going to do. God has always been organized. Uh, it just has to be that way. And the children of the captivity kept the Passover upon the 14th day of the first month. So Adar came. That's the month, you know, that sometimes is double when the 
heavenly calendar dictates, we have two months of Adar, the 12th and 13th month of the year. And uh, then you have the first month of the year with the Passover. For the priests and the Levites were purified together. All of them were pure and killed the Passover for all the children of the captivity and for their brethren, the priests, and for themselves. So there's more instruction for us. We need to be pure. We need to be clean. We need to be before God as a bride in white garments, picturing righteousness. The children of Israel, which are come again out of captivity, <clears throat> and all such as had separated themselves unto them from the filthiness of the heathen of the land to seek the Lord God of Israel, did eat. So they came out to keep the Feast of Tabernacle, or the Feast of Passover, and they had separated themselves from the filthiness of the world around them, the cultures and societies around them. Is it any wonder when we read about the temple of God and the original story here that many, many places God tells us to come out of Babylon, to be separate, to not be partaker of the filthiness that is out there. We have to separate ourselves from it. If we don't separate ourselves from it, we will simply not be fit to be a part of the building of the temple of God. That's why Haggai says so carefully there, the priests had better, have not, but had better, separate the clean from the unclean. It had not been done previously. And I know that our experience in worldwide over the decades was that they told us we needed to overcome, we needed to grow, but they never really got on us that heavily about not being anything like this world. At times, here and there, but it was not an emphasis, it was not a main <clears throat> force or direction or arm of what the church was teaching. Some places, depending on the local minister, it might have been stronger than it was in other places, but overall for the church it was not. But for us here at the end, reading this historical record and reading all the prophecies, it is emphasized over and over and over again. And that's why I talk so much about it. Uh, it's something that simply has to be done. And boy, are we slow and stubborn. <laughs> it is so hard for us to change. We were raised in a certain culture and in a certain way. And to change all of our thinking and to depart from that and pull away from it is really, really difficult. You wouldn't think that something as simple as giving up Coca-Cola could be that difficult. But it can be traumatic. I mean, I just pick that out of the hat of any number of a thousand things. But they separated themselves from the filthiness of the heathen of the land to seek the eternal of God of Israel and did eat and kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, not eight, seven. For the Eternal had made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them <clears throat> to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So the Assyrian opposed, but God turned him away and gave them strength to build a temple. 
Can we trust God if we're doing His bidding in the end to strengthen us and help us? Better believe it. That's what He's there for. Now after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sariah, and then he goes through his history and shows that he was directly rated, uh, related to Aaron. I won't read all that. It's there. Let's go to verse 6. This Ezra, the one that was related to Aaron, went up from Babylon, and he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses. Here was somebody that had an interest in and a desire to keep the law the way God had given it through Moses, which the eternal God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all his request according to the hand of the eternal, his God, upon him. That is in itself quite remarkable, isn't it? That a Gentile king would look at this Jew <laughs> and give him everything he desired. Anything he needed. Yours. We're dealing with a man who has that kind of attitude today. One time he caught himself, he said, well, I'm going to at least tithe. And then he said, on the other hand, every bit of my part is for teaching the commandments of God. That's what it's for. That's what I want done with it. He said, we're going to have to build a building to teach the commandments of God in. He showed me where he wants to build it. And he said, but I can't do that. That may be your job. You'll have to take that over. It's a remarkable attitude, really. Stop to think about it. He doesn't really know me that well. He doesn't really know what goes on in this room that well, although he did listen to Herbert Armstrong for a lot of years and read The Plain Truth for a lot of years, so he has a pretty good idea. He doesn't know what all's happened since, and every twist and turn. <laughs> but as I've said, if he's not the boy, he sure sounds like him. And uh, there'll have to be one kind of like him come along if he's not it. That's saying and doing the right things. So we'll see. Verse 7, And there went up some of the children of Israel, and of the priests and the Levites, and the singers, and the porters, and the Methodems, and to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king. And he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king, for upon the first day of the first month began he to go up from Babylon. On the first day of the fifth month came he to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. I've never thought of this till recently, but he left on the first day of the first month. And it took him five months to get there. Now, if you look at the Middle East, and where Babylon sits on the Euphrates, or did, and where that Jerusalem is today, it's roughly 500 miles. Let's be generous and give it six. I didn't look it up, but I looked at the scale map in my Bible. And uh, you, could, you take out Sabbath and seven days of unleavened bread, and it would still, you'd only have to average about four miles. And if we want to push it five miles a day for five months to get from that Babylon to that Jerusalem. Even if you went around the Fertile Crescent up toward Turkey and around and made it a little longer, you know, those people did a lot of walking in those days. They're not like us gimpy modern fat Americans who can hardly walk from here to the, you know, to the refrigerator. Uh, I mean, from here to up a mountain, excuse me. 
Uh, that was probably being a little overdramatic there, wasn't it? I don't know. Anyway, they were accustomed to walking, and a 20-mile journey in a day was nothing to them. And remember, too, that this man was motivated. He had a very, very important job given by God, and he wanted to get from point A to point B as fast as he could, and it still took him five months. You know what five months is, even with sailing ships? That's time to go all the way across the Atlantic, sail up the Rio Grande or the, and the San Juan or the Colorado or wherever, and come all the way from the Middle East to here. It took them about three months in a sailing ship to get across the Atlantic. And the ancients knew the Atlantic as the river because it had lots of currents in it, just like a what we would call a river today, like the Mississippi has currents. They're just a lot bigger currents. But they didn't depend on <coughs> steam or diesel. In those days, they depended upon winds and water currents. So in their way of reckoning and thinking, uh, the currents of the ocean are like currents of a river. And they had to pay close attention to the currents of the winds in order to get where they wanted to go. So we just look upon the ocean as something we fly over and look down at occasionally as we go from here to Europe or somewhere. But to them, it, they had to know uh, the currents and the winds and so on a whole lot better than we do today. We get in our big diesel ocean liners and just plow straight across it, no mind about the currents. But it was different in those days. Just a little aside there, which I found very interesting. Even I... I think, could walk from Babylon to that Jerusalem, that Babylon to that Jerusalem in less than five months. And he was in a hurry and probably younger and in good condition. Somebody handed me a note just before services, if you want another little aside. Uh, he said, are bears indigenous to the Middle East? David killed the lion and the bear. And I don't remember ever having read of bears in the Middle East. There are bears up in Siberia, northern Russia, uh, Norway, polar bears and some grizzly bears over there as well. But uh, And there's no bears as such in Africa. Uh, and you got some little cute pandas in Asia, but nothing that we would consider a bear. Uh, they said they looked at the map that showed the, the distribution of bears and they didn't find it in the Middle East, so that one might be worth looking into. I always thought of David having killed an African-type lion over there, but it had entered my mind more recently that maybe it was more like our mountain lion over here. Which, if he attacks you, that's still a pretty good battle. But were there bears, grizzly bears and black bears over there, like there were here? But that ought to be researched and checked out. Because if David killed one, it might not have been over there. I've been over here. <clears throat> Little things keep adding up. I'm not sure about that one, but it's a question. Oh, anyway, it took him five months to get across. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the eternal and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. It's one thing to seek the law. That's a very, very important thing to do. The next important thing is to do it. 
And that's the hardest part to do. It's easy to come in and say, well, the law needs to be kept. But you have a much more difficult job in doing it than in acknowledging it. And he took it a third step further and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. So they had teachers back then, believe it or not. Now this is the copy of the letter that the king Artaxerxes gave to Ezra, the priest, the scribe, even a scribe of the words of the commandments of the eternal and of his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, a scribe of the law of the God of heaven. Perfect peace, and at such a time. You would think if these people recognized he was the God of heaven, they'd say, well, I, maybe I ought to obey him. You know, but they never do. They acknowledge who he is, but they're not going to do anything about it. <coughs> said, I make a decree that all day of the people of Israel and of his priests and Levites in my realm, which are minded then, are minded of their own free will to go up to Jerusalem, go with you. Now, I want to interject a point here that I missed for a long time, and the research I did showed that this Artaxerxes had a different name. He could have been called Xerxes III, or he could have been called Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus, ring a bell? That was the husband, the king of Esther. So that byplay of the book of Esther and the story of her being chosen by the king and Haman coming and trying to kill all the Jews apparently was part and parcel with the story of building the temple. Now does it begin to make a little more sense out of us coming to see that Purim is not just a physical Jewish thing, uh, but that it had to do and be involved in the building of the temple as well, and that that is a precursor to us building a temple here at the end time. So the story of Esther becomes intertwined in our lives. And I think that is a compelling reason now <clears throat> that we should consider keeping Purim and what Esther and Ahasuerus did for us. Well, it's not just a Jewish thing, because we are the spiritual Jews of the end, and those physical Jews over there are not going to build the temple of God. They may build the temple of the Jews, but God's own people have to build the temple of God. Didn't we see that made clear back here? Edomites won't be invited, and neither will physical Jews, unless they have become a part of the spiritual movement of the living God. You know, sometimes we see something, we say, well, maybe we ought to do that. And maybe we don't see as clearly at first all the reasons why. We just see, hmm, that might ought to be done. And we might have a reason or two. But then as time goes on, and we learn more, and we see more, and we see how the Bible is all tied together, suddenly there are even bigger more obvious reasons why we should have started doing what we should do. And already just this morning, we've seen references made to the fast or the feasts of joy of dedication of the temple, which had been destroyed and had been fasted over all these years. So those fasts become prominent in the story, and now Esther and Ahasuerus also become a part of the story.
So he was very favorably disposed to the Jews at that point because of what Esther had done and what Haman had done. So he said, all of you who want to go, you just go. He didn't browbeat anybody and tell them to get out of there, but he did say, anybody that wants to be involved, you be involved. What does God say at the end time? I will stir people to come, and they will volunteer, basically, and come to work in the temple of God. That's in Haggai, and then in Zechariah 6, it says they'll come from distant lands, from far away, to build in the temple of God. So they will volunteer to go up to Jerusalem to do what God wants done. For as much as you were sent of the king and of his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. So this has to do with commandment keeping and the commandments of God. How many people on earth today, how many churches, how many organizations outside Worldwide Church of God's wayward daughters <clears throat> teach and keep the commandments of God? I asked that question of a group not long ago. What church anywhere on earth do you know of that keeps the commandments of God other than that offspring of Herbert Armstrong? I'll ask it again. Do you know of any? I mean, I, I'm honestly saying, if, if you know of any, I'd like to hear about it. But I don't know any. <coughs> and this man we're dealing with is adamant. He says it must be commandment keepers. Must be. wonder if that tells us something. There aren't many men that would say that. Maybe there's another one out there. Maybe this isn't the guy. But we shall see. He's certainly saying the right things. <coughs> Verse 15, And to carry the silver and gold, which the king and his counselors have freely offered unto the God of Israel, whose habitation is in Jerusalem. So this man says, if we do find the temple treasures, which a lot of people are looking for, he intends to hand them to us to put in the temple of God. story is pretty tight so far, isn't it? And all the silver and gold that you can find in all the province of Babylon, with the free will offering of the people and of the priests, offering willingly for the house of their God, which is in Jerusalem. How many kings of Gentile countries in the world today do you know if they saw the people of God keeping the commandments of God would say, I want you to go through my whole land and find all the silver and gold you can find and anything that anyone will offer to you and take it to Jerusalem. Approach the Bushies or the Clintons or the Merkels or the Yongpongs or whoever around the world. You won't find it. I know a man today who says, if I find it, it's yours. Now we wait and find out if he finds it. <laughs> you know? Nothing's been found yet. We're hypothesizing. 
but I don't think we're hypothesizing the story. Whether this man or that man or another man might be the fulfillment of it is all, all that remains to be seen. The story is in Scripture. It's very clear. And, and that's what I'm trying to show you and me. That this is a very clear story. Get all this wealth gathered up, verse 17, that you may buy speedily with this money bullocks, rams, lambs, with their meal offerings and their drink offerings, and offer them upon the altar of the house of your God, which is in Jerusalem. Not just for your wages, but all those offerings. It's reiterated. And whatsoever shall seem good to you, not only the care of the workers, not only be sure God is taken care of, but anything else that seems good to you. That's carte blanche to do basically anything that you think ought to be done. Isn't that incredible when you think about it in terms of mankind's rule on this earth? And to your brethren, to do with the rest of the silver and the gold, that do after the will of your God. Whatever you think God would have you do with it, you just go right ahead and do it. No strings attached. Excuse me. The vessels also that are given you for the service of the house of your God, those deliver you before the God of Jerusalem. It'd be like our government emptying out Smithsonian and all the art galleries in uh, in Washington D.C. and giving every precious thing that they've collected over the years to us is what this is, tantamount to the same thing. Uh, verse 20, And whatsoever more shall be needful for the house of your God, which you shall have occasion to bestow, bestow it out of the king's treasure house. Anything else you think money needs spent on, you just come to the treasure house, take it out, use it. We're looking for someone who has this attitude right here at the end what we're looking for, because this is a history that is laid down as a pattern for the future. Verse 21, and I, even I, Artaxerxes the king, or Ahasuerus the king, to make a decree to all the treasurers which are beyond the river, whether it was the Euphrates or the Atlantic, I guess remains to be seen, but all the treasurers of all my provinces, of all my states, of all my government, that whatsoever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, shall require of you, it be done speedily. Don't hold back. Ezra knocks on the door and says, I want such and such, or I need such and such. Hand it to him right then. Can you imagine walking up to the U.S. Mint in Denver and saying, I'm Ezra, I need X billion dollars. Okay. Hey, boys, bring it out. <clears throat> Go up to Fort Knox. I need so many gold bars. Hey, guys, bring it on out. Well, that might not be the best example. I'm not sure there's any left there, but still, you get the point. It's the same deal. Verse 22. Unto a hundred talents of silver, and to a hundred measures of wheat, and to a hundred baths of wine, into a hundred baths of oil, 
and salt without prescribing how much. Wherever it is, they're to be given this, this much. And in addition, whatsoever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it diligently be done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? This king had a certain fear of God. If he's the man that I think he was, Ahasuerus, he had seen God deliver Esther. He'd seen him deliver all the Jews. He'd seen the Jews whip up on and kill their enemies in his own court by the hundreds, thousands. And he said, I don't want God mad at me. I won't worship him, but I don't want him mad at me either. So you make sure that anything that the house of God needs, it's taken care of. The end time Cyrus, it says, does not know God. It says it twice in Isaiah 45. It says, I've led you by the hand, but you haven't known me. And I think God, in some ways, led Ahasuerus here by the hand through Esther, but he still didn't know God, although he had a certain fear of him and a certain concern that he be pleased. So he didn't want wrath against his kingship and his sons. Also we certify you that touching any or in regard to any of the priests and Levites, singers, porters, Nephilims, or ministers of this house of God, it shall not be lawful to impose toll, tribute, custom, tax upon them. <coughs> Give them everything that they need or want, and don't you dare tax them. That's quite a concession there, too, isn't it? I wonder exactly where that particular statement will fit somewhere in the end time. God is going to separate us from the rest of this world. He's going to put a wall of fire around us. And they won't be able to penetrate it to tax us. Our taxes will stop. Exactly how or when that happens, we will, we will see. They say there's nothing sure than death, death and taxes. All right, we can take taxes out of that. They won't be so sure. <clears throat> and if we obey our God, death won't be so sure either, will it? There will be some alive and remaining when the first resurrection occurs. And it could be some of us. Not all of us, I know, but some of us it could be. Verse 25, And you, Ezra, after the wisdom of your God, that is in your hand, set magistrates and judges. He tells him, you set up a governing organization <coughs> which may judge all the people that are beyond the river. Again, is that the Euphrates over there? Is that the Euphrates here? Is it the Atlantic? Time will tell. those that are beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God and teach you them that know them not. Now, in regard to how far-reaching that kingdom might have been, the story back in uh, Esther is that the provinces of the king of the Medes and Persians went clear over into Southeast Asia, into India. And when they sent that message out to kill the Jews and then for the Jews to kill uh, their enemies, it went clear over to India. 
So we're not talking about a little bubble kingdom in the Middle East somewhere. We're talking about a world-ruling empire, the Medes and Persians, who had provinces as far away from there as India, if that's where they were. So if it was that far that direction, couldn't it have been just as far the other direction? Let's see, where was I now? Okay. Okay, so set up this organization to judge all the people that are beyond the river. Uh, he was in charge of all those provinces beyond that point, whatever it was. All such as know the laws of your God, and teach you them that know them not. Uh, we have a man who says that we have to set up a building and teach the laws of God. That's what he told me in so many words several months ago. But right here I want to build this building, and we have to teach people the laws of God right here. And he said, that's not my job. You may have to take it over. Amazing. Same words we read right here. And whosoever will not do the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily upon him, whether it be to death or to banishment or to confiscation of goods or to imprisonment. That's a pretty broad range there of punishment that could be done to anyone who would not listen to God. Now, I think this will carry on over into the millennium and the, the reign of Christ in which you will obey or else. And even once the witness begins the last three and a half years against the world, if they will not obey the law of God, they will have plagues. If they try to hurt the messengers, fire will come from their mouth and kill them. So I think that there is a full time, an end-time fulfillment, and that will carry on over into the law of Christ because he will rule with a rod of iron. He will see to it that it starts before he gets here, and it will continue once he is here. You know, we, we have the children sing about the lion and the lamb and the wolf and all these peaceful things in the millennium, and it will be peaceful. How does it become that way? It takes a rod of iron. Because people simply will not accept God's method of bringing peace. They have their own way of bringing peace and joy to their little lives. And it doesn't usually coincide with God's way. So it's, it's amazing in a way that it takes great strength and power and might and even death. The death of more than 90% of the people on this earth. That's truly a rod of iron to shut down the rebellion against government, the rebellion against law, the rebellion against God's teachers, whom they'll kill right at the end. It is going to take some very powerful means to bring peace to this earth. When all we really want is peace and joy and happiness, but we just don't want it God's way. We don't like his methods. God says, spank your children, so we say, talk them out of it. Give us a break. 
God says if you don't chasten that child, you do not love him. Not God's way. You may have emotion for him, but you don't love him if you let him get on with his way. Now, do we want the love of God or just our little emotion? We wouldn't want to hurt our little darling. If you're going to spank a child, it has to hurt. That's the whole point. And if God's going to spank this world here at the end, it is going to hurt and hurt bad. But that's what it's going to take. Ahasuerus was not a stupid man. He knew that teaching the commandments of God and keeping the laws of God was going to require some pretty harsh sentences when it was disobeyed. He was just telling Ezra, you can go ahead and rule as God would rule. Isn't that what he's saying? He's saying eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, live by the law of Moses. And if they kill or they steal, then punish them according to the law of Moses. He's saying, live by your laws, govern by your laws. I may be the king, but I want you to rule in those provinces the way God would rule. That's beautiful. Verse 27, blessed be the eternal God of our fathers, which has put such a thing as this in the king's heart. Ezra must have just been overwhelmed by what Ahasuerus was telling him. What if we were invited into the White House and President Bush were to tell us to do all these things that Ahasuerus had told Ezra? Wouldn't your jaw hit the rug? <coughs> but this is equivalent of that. Excuse me, that's gross. I'll quit here in a little bit. Blessed be the eternal God of our fathers, this is Ezra now speaking, which has put such a thing as this in the king's heart, to beautify the house of the eternal which is in Jerusalem. Not just to build it, decorate it, beautify it, give it everything that it could possibly need or want. And has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. And I was strengthened as the hand of the eternal my God was upon me. And I gathered together out of Israel chief men to go up with me. Ezra was buoyant and light as a feather, eager. I don't think it would have taken him five months to go from that Euphrates to Jerusalem with this behind him. He was excited. He got as many of his men as he could together and said, Man, we've been given everything there is to be given. He hasn't held anything back. Let's get down there and get it done. He was excited. I don't think he walked for an hour a day and said, ah, let's just kind of sit here by the road. We only have to make four or five miles. We got five months. I don't think so. I think they hastened. And even in hastening, it took five months. Makes me wonder if there wasn't some destination that we haven't previously understood. But God can open up the Red Sea. God has promised us in Jeremiah 31 that the things he does here at the end are going to make the Red Sea look like piddle-paddle. But we will forget the Red Sea. This will be so powerful, so enormous, 
So when somebody says, well, what you're talking about will set the world on end, you betcha. When God sets his hand to set this world on end, there is no one like him. He will set it on its end. And he will use people to do it, just as he did Moses and Aaron, just as he did Ezra, just as he did the early New Testament apostles. God is God, and there is none like him. Worship him, obey him, serve him. He is the one who can give us everything we could possibly need, and he's promised he will do it. Let's stop there for today.